Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John, and I'm one of the top three lawyers in Iceland. <laughs> and I'm Andy. In each episode, we we still talk about Njal's saga. No, 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 no. I'm the pessimist around here. Do it properly. I'm Andy. In each episode, we discuss a saga, <laughs> and then we do it over and over again. <laughs> yeah, that's not a lot more hopeful. <laughs> it's kind of like our Groundhog Day at this point. It's dark, and it's cold, and it's going to last the rest of our lives. Well, it's February. I suppose there's some sense to that. <laughs> and we have seen our shadows, so it looks like only six more weeks of Njal Saga. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, I, if people are wondering why we're every episode kind of shocked that we're doing yet another episode on Njal Saga, <laughs> it's because we didn't plan for it to be like this. No. It just sort of happened. But uh, you mentioned six weeks. I w- I'd like to hold you to that. Six weeks mm-hmm. and we're done? I can live with that. Well, we're coming to the final section of the saga. This is our 10th episode and our next to last episode on the saga itself. 10 episodes. So this Mm -hmm. episode is brought to you by the the decimal counting system. Exciting. If you like. I prefer to think of it as the binary number 1010. I mean, I didn't think it could get less impressive than decimal counting system, but (laughs) you, you did it. Good job. I didn't say it was impressive. Uh, It's also the smallest non-Katoshian number, (laughs) which is a number that can be expressed as the difference between a positive integer and the number of co-prime integers beneath it. Oh, of course. Yes. It strikes me as a fairly arbitrary thing to be proud of, but there you go. Well, 10 is also, I don't know if you know this, John, the atomic number of neon, which is the second lightest of the noble gases, of course. You just happened to have that information to hand, did you? (laughs) Yeah, just like you kind of knew all about non-Katoshian or whatever numbers. (laughs) <laughs> Touche. Ten, the exact number of adult Jewish men required for a minion. <laughs> and uh, for that matter, the number of uh, commandments. And uh, in a slightly more uh, Christian vein, the exact number of lords a-leaping in the 12 days of Christmas. <laughs> there you go. Also, the number of uh, legs on shrimp, hermit crabs, and other decapods out there. Good for you guys. And <laughs> good on you. Uh <laughs> And the exact number of official ink blots in a Rorschach test. Just out of, out of curiosity, John, what do they need with ten legs? Like, isn't that just too too many? I mean, I get eight. <laughs> you feel like you feel like eight's enough for any yeah, right who thinking. Who needs ten? What are they doing? Sure, sure. I guess it's a safety thing. Well, also, you know, otherwise you'd be showing up at parties with octopuses, and you both have to both be at the same number of legs, and it'd be very embarrassing. That, that they couldn't tell their pants apart. That's exactly the point. Yeah, I see. Okay, so uh, you know. Ten's feeling to me like it's a very easy one. You want to just keep doing this instead of going over the saga? (laughs) No. (laughs) How's this? Uh, I'll try to find a segue. Uh, Ten is the number of the fortune or chance card in a modern tarot deck. Fortune, you say? Well, it's a Mm -hmm. little bit of a stretch, uh, but a lot of people did die in the fire in the last episode. Uh, Not by Mm -hmm. chance, and it was a bad fortune, but... uh, (laughs) <laughs> if you remember, Kari Salmunderson just barely survived. So it, it's, it was fortune. I'll allow mm-hmm. it, yes. You're too kind. Uh, uh, should we actually explain how Kari ended up singed? Absolutely, let's do it. Last time on Njal Saga. Njal Thorgerson's family and their friends were attacked at their farm by a large band of enemies led by Flossi Thorgerson. Though they gave a manly account of themselves in the battle, the Njalsons were unable to stop Flossie's men from lighting the farmhouse aflame, with the entire Njalson family inside. Things got hot under the collar as the Njalsons tried to find a way out of the blaze. Helgi tried sneaking out with the women, but Flossie rumbled his scheme and cut off his head. 
Njarl, Bergthora, and their grandson Thord Karrison all went to bed under an oxide blanket, casting themselves on God's mercy. All three later perished in the smoke and fire. Meanwhile, Kari, Scarfhaven, and Grinsalt escaped through a hole in the roof. But only Kari managed to skidoo before the roof beams collapsed. Trapped inside, Grimnjalsen soon succumbed to the smoke, while Scarpathen was caught under a burning beam and died a horrible and lengthy death. Flossi and his men soon learn of Kari's escape, and while they aren't able to stop him from rounding up a posse against him, they do manage to elude capture and hole up at Flossi's farm. All Iceland soon hears of the burning of Njal's family, and so everyone knows that the next Althing is likely to see a legal showdown between Kari's supporters and the Burners. So... This episode is all about the lawsuit that takes place after the burning. Uh, all about? Yeah. Well, there's a fair amount of law, but there's an awful lot of brawling in there, too. Uh, how could I forget the fisticuffs? Uh, mm-hmm. But it, it does make sense that there's going to be a lawsuit, and a big one. We've just seen the mm-hmm. killing of Iceland's greatest legal mind, and a burning. Um, so a courtroom drama is uh, it's an appropriate tribute for Noel, I think. Yeah, but come on, Eddie. That's no way to sell the hotcakes. This isn't just some boring set of legal briefs. Burned hotcakes? Hmm? <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, but we, we wouldn't be completely honest if we didn't acknowledge that this section does get a little bogged down in legal mumbo-jumbo. Now look, no one likes their jumbo mumboed less than me. I think you know that. Oh yes, of course. Uh, but there's definitely an ebb to the story at this point. Andrew Hamer wrote about this part. The sheer amount of legal process and argument in Yal's saga has evoked varying responses from critics... Some of whom feel there is too much legal detail. <laughs> too much. Uh, some of whom. Uh, I'd put most of our students into that category as well. I think we could put most of our colleagues into that category. <laughs> and on the right night ourselves, too. Well, fair enough. Uh, I don't think, anyway, that it's pointless detail. Right? It's all in the service of building narrative tension. And when things finally pick up again, it's going to be absolutely epic. Sure, but uh, we do have to get through a lot to get to that point, though. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't we explain just what is going to be happening? Oh, I was waiting for you to say that, John. In this episode, we follow Flossie and the Burners as they bounce around the region seeking support for the inevitable legal case against them. Things look grim for Flossie as he's turned away time and again, but he eventually secures the services of Eolf Bolverksen with the help of a heavy golden armory. With one of the three greatest lawyers in Iceland at his side, Flossie is sure to do well at the All-Thing, right? Meanwhile, a slightly singed but recovering Kari Solmundersen prepares his case against the Burners. And who better to help him than Thorhall Osgrimson, the man trained in law by none other than Njal himself? In a rather unfortunate and disgusting turn of events, Thorhall's bedridden with a nasty boil on his leg leaving the case in the capable but clumsy hands of Morth Valkson. Yes, the same one who once encouraged the burning of Gunnar inside of his own house. And isn't it ironic, don't you think? The case brings all the major power players of Iceland together, including a controversial Saga Thing favorite. With so much to be gained and lost, sides are quickly chosen, and tensions are at an all-time high. The threat of violence permeates the proceedings as more than Eolf trade legal barbs and try to outmaneuver one another, with the unfortunate Thorhall advising from his bed. Will justice be served when cooler heads prevail? 
or will the hallowed site of the Althing be desecrated with the blood of those too slow to dodge the incoming spears? Find out as Saga Thing takes on Njal's Saga, chapters 133 to 145. I think we're going to find that we can do a bit of summing up when it comes to the actual legal proceedings. The real dramatic through line of this section is the building tension as we wait to see whether the laws of Iceland and the court system can provide a satisfying verdict against Flosi and his burners for their crimes. It's a tall order. To yeah, I'm not saying it's going to be easy. Well, it's not just that the burners killed Njal and his sons. I mean, they used fire, an indiscriminate weapon of mass murder in the sagas. And two old women and a small boy died in the flames, which is very remarkable and quite shameful for the burners. I mean, this is a massive offense against the norms of Icelandic feud. Personally, John, I'm outraged. And and I'm just sitting here in my house enjoying a pretty good beer. I I can't imagine how any legal (laughs) system is supposed to contain the fury of Kari and his friends at this point. Well... I do think that's really the point of this section of the saga. What, the failure of the legal system altogether? Sort of. We'll get to that. I I mean, the limits of the law. Mm. I mean, the sad truth is that for many people, the idea of violent revenge carries a visceral satisfaction that legal resolution can't match. Oh, you don't have to tell me. Even if it does work, which isn't guaranteed. Well, uh, let's at least give it a chance. Are you you ready to get this thing started? Let's stop talking about it. Let's do it. If it if it please the court. Excellent. Part 42, After the Fire. So, this first bit is one of those simultaneous action sequences that saga authors are so good at. But it's kind of confusing for us to talk about two large groups of men both running around doing things at once. So, we'll be sorting out the actions of Flosi and Kari's groups and talking about them one at a time. Yeah, it doesn't translate well into an oral discussion, but uh, the saga is building tension nicely here. Both groups are making plans for what they know will be a huge lawsuit, but Flosi and Kari themselves are tormented by their experiences at the burning of Njal and his family, so a lot of the work of getting things in place is now falling to other people. Right, but Flosi and Kari are never far from the action, and their inability to forget what's happened propels this next part of the narrative. We're going to deal with Flosi's story first. Okay, so Flosi and his burners, as we said, are holed up at Flosi's farm in Svinefell, where they're safe from Kari's men for the time being. Right, but safe in this case just means well defended. Yes. It's not that Kari doesn't know where they are, it's just that there are a lot of them there and it would be too risky to attack them. Exactly, but that means they're also pinned down. They can't visit their homes or farms, and it's got to be pretty crowded at Svinefell. Yeah, I and, and then one night, Flosi has a bad dream. Ah, now we've Mm. seen bad dreams before in this saga, but this one is an extreme case. Flosi has dreamed of a man coming out of a mountain called Lomadnupur. Flosi's friend Gloom has to wake him up, and Gloom calls Kettle of Mork over to hear what Flosi has to say. Right. Remember, Kettle is the oldest surviving Sigvason, but he was also a son-in-law of Njal. He's been caught between the two sides in this feud, but he did take part in the burning along with his brothers, and so now he's hiding out along with Flosi. Yeah, I feel bad for him. Uh, So Flosi now explains this dream. He says, I saw a man in a goatskin with an iron staff in his hand. Hang hang on, hang on. Have you forgotten our Flosi voice? I have. What is our Flosi voice? It's our Charlton Heston. I saw a man. Is that more like it? (laughs) It's close. All right. So. Slightly younger uh, Charlton Heston. uh, Younger? Oh, well. Flosi says. That's my, I don't know where I'm going with that. It's just Sean Connery. Yeah. So Flosi. Oh, <laughs> 
So Flossie now explains his dream. I saw a man in a goatskin with an iron staff in his hand come out of the Lomagnuk. As he walked, he called out to my men. First he called Grim the Red and Arne Colson, then Eof Bolvikson and Ljot, son of Hall of Heather, and six other men. Then he called another five men, many men. Among them were the Siegfersons, your brothers, Ketil. Then he called five more, including Lombi and Modof and Glum, and then he called three more men. And then he called... And <laughs> What a stupid dream. <laughs> and then, yes, he called another. It was Gunnar Lambeson and Cole Thorsteinson. Do you want me to keep going? <laughs> That's enough. This is an incredible list. I mean, nearly every one of the burners is named, with only a few exceptions. It's our first indication of just how massive a task Kari has before him in seeking revenge at all these people. Yeah, I mean, how many people is that altogether? I was busy reading, actually. I don't I didn't keep track of it. <laughs> uh, okay, I kept track of this. Uh, four named men, six unnamed, then five more, then five more, then another three, then two more. Ah, is that a Katoshant or a non-Katoshant number? Right? It's, <laughs> it's, it's 25. 25, <laughs> 25 yeah? Yeah, 25. Uh, and don't forget Flossie's nephew, Thorsten Kolbinson, who was killed by Ingjald of Kelder the morning after the burnings. That's 26 burners. And that's just the actual burners, not their friends and allies. That must be a Toshin number. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, it's unbelievable. Uh, and the dream's not over yet. Now the dream figure, whose name is Iron Grim, recites a verse. A hardy warrior will harry here soon. Men will see on the ground many forts of brains. <laughs> Singing of swordplay will sound in the hills. Dew of blood will dampen many legs. Uh, many forts of brains. I know, right? I mean, obviously, it means skulls, but it's yeah. a strange kenning. And the less said about dew blood dampened legs, the better. Iron Grimm's <laughs> kind of gross. He is. Well, his questionable poetry aside, this figure Iron Grimm has actually become something of a mascot for the region of Loma Nupar. That's not surprising. This dream catches a lot of people's imagination. Uh, there's some more recent poetry that features Iron Grimm as well. Uh, really? John Helgeson, the poet scholar, wrote the poem Afangar about uh, Flossie's dream. And in it, the giant stands with iron staff in hand alongside Loma Nupar Mountain. He calls to me and he calls to you in a deep and somber voice. Uh, hang on a second. Are we doing 20th century poetry now? Well, occasionally when it's relevant. Well, okay. I don't know that that was relevant. I liked it. <laughs> All right. The important point I is... I may not know art, but I know what I like. The important point I'm trying to say here is that Flossy is now laboring under the same kind of bad luck fate that Njal had to deal with late in his life. Uh, so now we have to see how he bears up under the strain of knowing just how much death and destruction the future holds. Sure. Well, that assumes the dream is true, though, which is never entirely certain with the sagas. Well, Although in this case, it's hard to dispute the dream's authority. It pretty well corresponds to the gold standard for medieval dream vision interpretation, which is Macrobius's Somnium Scipionis. Well, I mean, do you want, do you want to explain that, or are you just planning on dropping that little Latin tidbit on the rug and leaving it there? <laughs> I don't want to derail things. Oh, uh, but okay, you're pretty good at that. So go ahead. Uh, so Macrobius was a fifth-century Roman writer who wrote an analysis of a dream that takes place in Cicero's De Republica. Uh, Macrobius lays out all the qualities you should look for to determine an oracular dream. So a dream that has the True meaning in his vision. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, without going into the details, all the qualities of an oracular vision are at least superficially present in Flossie's dream. Interesting. Which means that for an educated medieval audience, 
there, there are actually textual signals that they should take this dream seriously. Right. So like, can I just ask really quickly before we get mm-hmm. back to the saga? Yeah. Um, does uh, Macrobius talk about just listing numbers of names of people? No, the focus is more on the idea that there's sort of a guide, uh, an authoritative guide, usually an older male figure uh, who can speak to you authoritatively and explain the dream to you, explain what ah. the meaning of your dream is. Yes. In the case of the Somnium Scipionis, it's his grandfather, Scipio Africanus, who comes and, and speaks to him. So basically, if I have a dream, wake up and ask my wife what it meant, and she tells me we're following the, the rubric. No. Oh. <laughs> she because was not she... in your dream telling you what it meant. And she's not a dream, wise old man. Right. The oracular dream comes with someone in the dream who tells you what the dream means. Think of, think of Virgil walking Dante through hell yes. in the Inferno. Right? That's the kind of thing he's talking about. A vision in which there is an authoritative figure who guides you through the dream and explains it to you as you go. But when you wake up, he's not. He doesn't have to be there. Remember the part where I said I didn't want to derail things? <laughs> <laughs> this is what the people come to the podcast for. John. Right, exactly. So if, uh, if I wake up, does Virgil have to be there? No. <laughs> I think we're on the same page now. Everyone Absolutely. got that? You're not required to sleep with Virgil to have a good dream. It couldn't it's hurt. It's merely a bonus. <laughs> <laughs> bonus as in good. Mm-hmm. It's Latin. It's a Latin joke. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Let's get back to the saga. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the winter passes and Flosi gathers his men together. Obviously not to tell them about the dream. He wants to go on a tour of the countryside to gather support. And he puts on a set of feedy pajamas for the trip, doesn't he? He what? Uh, it says he was wearing trousers and stockings in one piece because he was planning to walk. So, feedy oh, pajamas. Oh, yeah, that. Yeah, feedy pajamas, huh? But uh, it, it sounds like some sort of travel pants that keep mud from splashing into your socks, probably. Well, it's springtime in the Icelandic countryside. That just sounds practical. Yeah, it's what all the fashionable go that are wearing these days. Sure. Okay. So... Flosi, in his feedy pajamas, travels first to his father-in-law, Hall of Sitha, and he gets told off a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hall isn't happy about the company Flosi's been keeping. The hand's joy in the blow is brief. The very men in your company who were most pushing for trouble are now hanging their heads. But I'm duty-bound to support you any way I can. Yeah, that's not surprising. We've seen Hall of Sitha a few times, remember. And he's almost the quintessential Christian convert in the saga. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not the sort to get mixed up in burning children and old women to death. Not yeah, usually. he's definitely the most moral of Flosi's supporters. Uh, others are less admirable. Uh, Flosi's next visit is to Hallbjorn the Strong. Mm-hmm. Hallbjorn's more typical of the support Flosi's going to have to rely on here. Uh, when they talk about the burner situation, Flosi hands a full purse over to Hallbjorn and acknowledges that it's a bribe to win Hallbjorn's support. Well, he's handing over a full purse. He could hardly deny it. <laughs> right. Uh, and Halbrun makes a good show of saying, no, that's not necessary. Uh, but he also doesn't give the money back. Uh, well, the company keeps moving then. Sometimes Flosi manages to win support, sometimes not. Uh, he does manage to get Hrofenkel Thorsen to uh, support him, which is a great callback for us. Oh, that's right. This is the grandson of the Hrofenkel from Hrofenkel Saga. Yes. Uh, really, this is just a cameo. Uh, Ravenkel pledges to send his son Thorir to support Flosi, but neither father nor son are ever mentioned again in the saga. So mm-hmm. if they do show up at the All Thing, they're awfully quiet about it. 
well, you know, half-hearted support's better than an outright refusal, I think. But uh, mm. there's an embarrassing moment at another farm where sorely Brod Helgeson uh, actually refuses to help. Why is that embarrassing? Well, Sorley is Halbjorn the Strong's brother-in-law. Oh, right, yes. Uh, Halbjorn is married to Sorley's sister. But marriage alliances work both ways, Andy. Yes, they do. I learned about that firsthand, let me tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Sorley is married to Thordis, the daughter of Guthman Mm -hmm. the Powerful, and uh, Guthman's very much on Kari's side of this whole thing. Right. Uh, But meanwhile, Sorley's brother Bjarni isn't obligated to Guthman, and when they visit him... He offers his support to Flosi unequivocally. Oh, it's, it's a complete mess. I'm sure nobody's even it following is. this at this point. Well, I mean, there's a lot of this kind of thing going on behind the scenes in this part of the saga. Right? A feud always comes with the risk of divided loyalties. But when something as big as the burning happens, everyone's got friends on both sides. Yeah, I imagine there'd be a lot of awkward Yule parties that winter. <laughs> oh, oh, you're supporting Kari? Interesting. Hmm. Well, personally, I think he should burn in hell like his in-laws did. Could you pass the dinner rolls, please? Of course! Try the fish! It's excellent. Incidentally, Flossie's men are thugs and murderers, and I hope they all suffer for their crimes. More (laughs) wine. (laughs) May the crows eat them all. So, (laughs) once he's finished ruining everyone's parties, he returns home (laughs) until it's time to head to the all-thing that summer. But at this point, Flossie does something a little out of character. Well... I mean, he does something nasty and petty. Whether it's out of character depends on what you think of his character. <laughs> oh, you're really down on him, aren't you? I mean, you got to think before the burning. He wasn't Look, so bad. The last time we saw Flosi, he was essentially standing around outside a burning house holding a match. So, yeah, I'm not throwing him a party. <laughs> Did they have matches? Uh, no, I said basically. Okay, okay, uh, what I that, mean is that these, uh, there are these hints here and there that we're not supposed to buy into Flosi's public image as a nice guy. Mm. Like when he uh, ducked to avoid Ingjald's spear and let his nephew get killed instead? Yeah, <laughs> like yeah that. see? That's not great. Well, this time he decides to take a hundred of his followers on a detour to the farm of Asgrim Elidegrimson. And mm. he actually says that he's doing it to show Asgrim our ill will. Okay, see now, yeah, that's a jerk move. Asgrim, people might remember, is one of Njal's oldest friends. Yes. His daughter, Thorhalla, is now the widow of Helgi Nelson. And his son, Thorhall, was Njal's foster son and protege. Mm-hmm. Now, those of you who have been uh, working with your pen and paper and keeping your mm-hmm. genealogies all straight and got your character list ready, it all paid off now, didn't it? See? You know exactly what we're talking Aren't about. Aren't you glad you spent the last eight months keeping these notes carefully? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and you already know there's no history of animosity between these two. Right. Flossie's just spoiling for a fight. Exactly. William E. Miller calls this highly stylized competitive shaming which I think just about covers it. Mm-hmm. I really like that phrase, actually. Uh, Flossie and his men show up at Osgrim's door, but Osgrim, who's spotted them coming, has already arranged food and comfort for them all, although he doesn't welcome them or make conversation. And when he realizes that Osgrim isn't going to give him an excuse for bad behavior, Flossie responds with ostentation. He lounges, lingers over his meal, and generally acts as if he owns the place. And the whole time, Osgrim sits silently glaring at him. Right. I know we said those other family dinners are awkward, but this is worse. Yeah. At the end of the meal, Asgrim has finally had enough. Uh, without saying a word, he grabs a wood axe and swings it at Flosi's head. <laughs> and Flosi's somehow caught off guard by this, which is totally ridiculous. And he nearly gets <laughs> killed on the spot, which would solve uh-huh. so many problems. But his friend Gloom Hledison sees the attack and catches the axe in midair. 
Flossie's men want to kill Asgrim, but Flossie calls them off. For we pushed him too far, and he only did what he had to do, and showed that he is a very bold man. See, you make it sound like he means it, but I've always thought this was another mockery no. of Asgrim. Sneering at the bold man who's been forced to feed his enemies and then failed to land a blow against them. Uh, well, since you brought up Miller already, I can too. Miller actually says that Osgrim wins this contest first by refusing to mm-hmm. rise to Flossie's taunts and then, after the meal's over, by showing that he's not afraid of a physical confrontation with him. Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I like that reading, but neither side seems happy with the outcome. Mm-hmm. This just strikes me as a bad idea all around. It does nothing oh, yeah. except underline how much bad blood exists between these groups. It's nasty, it's mean, and it's unnecessary. Well, Hall of Seetha isn't with Flossie during this trip, and when they do meet up at the All Thing, Hall isn't shy about letting Flossie know what he thinks about this little side trip. I think this was a very foolish move. Osgrim and his friends will remember their grief, even without fresh reminders. And men who press others hard are only making more trouble for themselves. Well said, Hall. Well said indeed. So Flossie and his men are now at the All Thing. Chastised by Hall, but protected by the rules of nonviolence that govern the gathering. But, you might ask, what have Kari and his friends been up to this whole time? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Part 43 The Telling of Grief. We left Kari at Osgrim's house in the fall, too overcome by grief to sleep at night. Now that we've traced Flossie's movements since that point, it's time to go back and look at what Kari and his friends have gotten up to during the winter and spring. All right. Well, the first thing to tell is that Thorhall Osgrimson has not taken the news of Njal's death well. Well, you wouldn't expect him to, really. Uh, as we were just saying, Thorhall is Njal's foster son and his student-in-law. Um, they're very close, and in some ways, Thorhall's more like Njal than Njal's sons. And when Thorhall's sister tells him the news... Let's just let the saga explain. Yeah. Thorhall Asgrimson was so moved that his whole body swelled up and blood gushed from both ears, and it did not stop until he fell in a faint, and then it stopped. After that, he stood up and said that this had not been manly of him. <laughs> well, manliness aside, he really needs to get that checked out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is a trope of the literature that people have physical reactions to holding back their emotions. Yeah. Do you remember but- we saw this in uh, in Ragnar Saga? Absolutely, when, uh, yeah, the sons, yeah, every mm-hmm. one of them reacting physically but not betraying their emotions with words or, or tears. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the author here is really intent on delivering the intensity of Thorhall's grief and anger at the news, I think. Yeah, yeah, by having him fountain blood all over the place until he passes out, that's a well, really good idea. he's really upset. <laughs> uh, as we'll see, he's going to be on the legal team trying to punish the burners for their crime. But his emotional reaction tells us that this is personal for him which is going to stand in stark contrast to the lawyer who works for Flossie and the defense. Yeah, but we haven't gotten to that yet. I know, that was a bit of foreshadowing. Ah, foreshadowing. Uh, but having Thorhall on the case is great for Kari. Thorhall is regarded as one of the three best lawyers in Iceland, so you're one of them, and then Thorhall... Hey, and... everybody's one of the top three lawyers in Iceland. <laughs> yeah, we're going to hear that claim again in a little while, but Thorhall really is supposed to be impressive, which makes sense for Njal's protege. Speaking of which, I wonder if Thorhall would have been considered top three a year ago. Hmm. After all, he just moved up one slot because of Njal's death. Well, Njal was the best, so I guess everyone's moved up one. Uh, Thorhall's Hmm. also not going to be working alone. Kari's got another lawyer on the team. Uh, We mentioned last time that Morth Volgertsen is now one of Kari's supporters. Ugh, yeah. 
Morth's got a skull that's just begging to be hit with an axe, uh-huh. but he's an able lawyer. And yeah. as we said last time, he's got very few friends left. Uh, Kari's men are willing to let him live if he's useful to them, and that's about the best deal Morth's going to get at this point. And we should say that Morth's a good lawyer, but not one of the top three in the land, despite his uh, claims. Now that's foreshadowing. Well, we'll see, won't we? Actually, it's not certain that we will at this point. Uh, Kari makes a trip to Morth's farm to discuss the case, but Morth starts hemming and hawing and generally trying to get out of helping. Yeah, you're right. He needs an axe to the head. I know, right? Uh, fortunately, Kari's prepared for this. He has a message from Gizer the White, the powerful chieftain who's now one of Kari's supporters. Yeah, Gizer's had a strange journey through this saga. You might remember that he was the leader of the attack that killed Gunnar Hamundersen all those years ago, um, mm-hmm. both uh, in the saga and here. <laughs> now he's a leader of the movement to punish the killers of Gunnar's best friend. Yeah, it's not inconsistent, though. Uh, in both cases, Gizer positions himself as a man of law and order. Uh, remember, Gunnar was an outlaw when he was killed. So it was it was a legal killing. Mm-hmm. And at that, Gizur refused on multiple occasions to set Gunnar's house on fire. Which, I mean, not to dredge up old grudges, but it was uh, Morth who was pushing him to burn <laughs> Gunnar to death. Absolutely. And now Gizur is part of the prosecution against a group of burners. As I said, it's not inconsistent. In both cases, he's on the side of the law, mm-hmm. even if we don't always like his position. Uh, in fact, someone like Gizur does help to keep us honest as readers. If he's consistent, but we aren't always supposed to approve of his view, doesn't that mean the narrative is encouraging us to be inconsistent? Mm. But that's frequently the case. I mean, saga narratives invite us to sympathize with certain figures, but not necessarily to approve of them. We can, for instance, recognize that the Njolsons are morally suspect in several episodes leading up to their deaths, but still be fully in sympathy with them in those final moments. Yeah. Absolutely. I think the best sagas are able to balance that. Yeah, and on the other hand, though, Morth is definitely inconsistent. But even then, I suppose, only if we ignore that his sole motivation at any time is is only advantage. Right. Now, as I was saying, Kari's come prepared for that. Gizur has sent a message. Not for Morth, but for Morth's wife, Thorkatla, who's Gizur's daughter. Thorkatla is to go home to her father. And there isn't a moment's hesitation, by the way. She begins packing on the instant. (laughs) Almost like she's happy for an excuse to leave. Well, let's let her explain. I have long been ready for us to part. Short but sweet. (laughs) Well, but unfortunately for her, Morth caves immediately and takes over the case at once. Uh, Sure, Morth at this point has seen his star fall about as far as it possibly can. And if he loses the marriage alliance to Gizor, he's totally out of political capital. Oh, yeah. He may still be a Gothi, a chieftain... In name, but without family connections and lacking popular support, he's essentially powerless. And to be fair to Morth, it's also suggested that he actually loves his wife. Uh, she clearly doesn't share that uh, love for him, but uh, <laughs> right. that's the case. When Kari sets out to come to Morth's house, Geezer gave him the message for Thorkatla and says, When he hears that, Morth will cave at once, because he loves Thorkatla like the eyes in his head. Oh, that's sweet. It is. Of course... As you said, it's pretty obvious she does not share in that affection. True, true. Uh, and just to rub salt in the wound, Kari growls at him. Now that you've taken over the case, prosecute it fearlessly, because your life depends on it. You know, it's a good thing Morth is such a jerk, or I might almost start to feel bad for him at this point. But he is a jerk. And oh, big time. Major jerk. Yeah. I, I don't actually feel bad for him. I'm just saying that he's a little pitiful at this point. Oh, yeah. Anyway... 
Uh, Kari's implied threat works, and Morth pours out a torrent of legalistic formulae that start things off with a bang. Well, I, I think bang is maybe overselling this a bit, John. <laughs> uh, it, it's a set of legal recitations that are all pretty much the same thing. Well, we should probably read one of them just to give a sense of what Morth is doing here. I'm going to let you do it. Go ahead. I have to do it? Right. Yeah. <clears throat> I call witnesses to witness that I give notice of a punishable assault against Flozy Thorson, in which he inflicted on Helgi Nalsen a brain wound, or internal wound, or marrow wound, which proved to be a fatal wound, and Helgi died of it. I give this notice before five neighbors. I give this lawful notice. I give notice that this case was turned over to me by Thorgeir Thorson. A brain wound. Or internal wound. <laughs> or marrow wound. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, and he repeats that same formula four times in a row. Uh, sometimes for no clear reason. Well, th- this is a formulation in law, but it reads like the author isn't all that confident about the law and maybe is just copying out a correct formula. Mm. Or, or else the point is that Moore isn't as confident in the law as he needs to be for this case. Um, uh, I know you're setting me up here. but Am I? We'll talk about Moore's competence as a lawyer later. Mm. As you said a few minutes ago, Moore's a good lawyer, but he's not one of Iceland's best. Yeah. You know, one of the things that uh, William Ian Miller points out in Why Is Your Axe Bloody is that if Morth was really doing his job, he would have dug up Helgi's body and checked the wounds specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they've done that in the past. But uh, anyway, pick up Why Is Your Axe Bloody if you're curious about all that stuff. It's really good. Yeah. Um, anyway, the recitation of legal detail is a real issue. Uh, this mm-hmm. next section of the saga is just loaded down with this kind of thing, and that's why some scholars suggest we skip it or uh, or complain about it. Um, I love a good legal formula as much as the next guy, but on the right night, as I said before, even my eyes start to glaze over on the fourth repetition of the same thing. Yeah, and this is just a taste of what's to come, but... Again, you're not really selling the bacon here, you know. It's not we my want job. people to continue listening. Oh, that's right. There are all kinds of <laughs> shenanigans for you guys to look forward to. Just keep uh-huh. listening. Wait till you see what we do at the end of the episode. Sure. <laughs> well, anyway, <laughs> we can at least promise that we'll be seriously skimming over a lot of the legal detail coming up for yeah, your it's benefit. Still a terrible job of advertising. Uh, I said anyway, something Kari and coming. company. Yeah, well, Kari and company are getting themselves ready for uh, heading to the all thing. Uh, but one night, when Kari and Thorhall Asgrimson are discussing their plans with Gizzard the White, the conversation turns to the victims of the burning. Oh, as you would expect. But uh, Kari hasn't been talking much about what happened, at least until now. Right, and he's not really participating in the conversation now. At least not until he speaks a verse. Mm-hmm. O wetter of axes, I went out in anger from the alders' sweat in Njal's home. When the wild woods of the sword burn there, listen as I lament my loss. Hmm. A wetter of axes. What's wrong with mm-hmm. the bathroom? Really? <laughs> I'm going to just leave that on the rug. It's your problem. You pick that up. <laughs> oh, That's pretty funny. Uh, anyway. Oh, dear God. So, <laughs> it's supposed to be somber. Hold on a second. <laughs> I enjoyed that one. I'm glad you did. I was waiting for the whole poem to finish. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. So, Kari's finally ready to talk about it. Well, months have passed, and maybe he wants to examine what happened. You know, talk it over with his closest friends and try to work through his grief. 
It sounds healthy, but it, it's not really a saga kind of thing to do. No. Uh, Gizur responds to Kari's verse, It's natural that this is on your mind. Let's not talk about it anymore for the time being. <laughs> there you go. Now that's good <laughs> saga advice. Just push it down. Maybe have a few drinks. Yeah. Why dredge up your pain and feelings? Yes. <laughs> Drink another glass of mead. Right. Silently. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Gizur isn't necessarily the most supportive friend. Mm. But, hey, not everybody is up for an emotionally raw conversation about grief. This isn't Ale Saga, you know. No. Yeah, we've got to get to Ale soon. Maybe, maybe... Can we, can we finish Nyal first? Sometimes I wonder if we can finish Nyal. <laughs> anyway, Geezer may not be the most emotionally available guy, but he's a firm supporter of Kari and Thorhall, and with his help, they're going to be able to muster an impressive force at the All Thing. Right, so the time has come for Kari and his friends to ride for the All Thing. The various groups meet along the way, with Njal's nephews Thorleaf Crow, Thorgrim the Tall, and Thorir Skorgir leading one group. Uh, Gizur the White and his followers form a second group. Osgrim brings a group of stragglers, and Kari rides along with Thorhall Osgrimson and the men of Tunga. And they need to get an early start because Thorhall's fallen ill. Oh, right. Yeah, he's got an infection in his leg, and it's so swollen and painful that he can't walk without help. Incidentally, this is why neither of these guys is around when Flosi rides in a few days later and harasses Osgrim. Mm -hmm. And then after they leave, Osgrim rides out for the All Thing himself, and at some point passes Kari and Thorhall. Right, now that's bad news about his leg. Uh, mm -hmm. Thorhall's one of the best lawyers around, you may have heard. Yes. Uh, and if he can't recover in time, the prosecution will be in the hands of Morth Valgridson. Ooh. Yeah, we keep saying Morth's competent, but he's no Thorhall. Well, the fact that Thorhall travels despite his diseased leg is a sign of just how serious the situation is. And no one wants to see Morth in charge of this case. <laughs> no. Uh, meanwhile, Kari's supporters and Flosi's burners are eyeing one another as the groups enter the all thing. Thor, Thorgir Skorgir begins openly hoping for a fight to break out. And at one stage, Flosi's men nearly attack Asgrim's contingent. Shame. But calmer heads prevail for the moment. For the moment. But uh, mm -hmm. even though Kari's got a problem with his best lawyer being sick in the leg, uh, Flosi's got an even worse problem. Which is? Yeah, he, he doesn't have a lawyer at all. <laughs> that is a problem. He's looking for a public defender. <laughs> Part 44, Making Friends and Influencing Chieftains. So, John, why doesn't Flosi have a lawyer yet? I mean, you, you would think that that would be his first step. Well, he's been hiding out at his farm and his movements are restricted. As he Not tells a friend restricted. later. Remember, he went all over the place. But as he tells a friend later, he doesn't know any good lawyers near his house. Uh. And he really hasn't been able to get around enough to look for one. On the other hand, he's got a lot of support from various chieftains and community leaders. Yeah, including the Muvatan clan. Uh, the sons of Killer Skuta and Askel ah. the Gothi from Rekdala Saga have joined his supporters. Killer Skuta. Yeah. yeah. In exchange for uh, small financial considerations, of course. Yeah, uh, that's a nice way of saying a bribe. Yeah, Flosi's not the man to balk at paying a little cash to his friends. Yeah, it's, it's a sordid, degraded world, I'm afraid. Yeah. Uh, but no matter how many friends he buys, Flosi's still going to need a legal team. Hmm. You know, just to pause here, I would have thought that the conversion would lead us towards a more kind of golden age, a nice age, kind of a more ethical age. You um, would have been very, very wrong about that. 
Yeah, it seems like everything was good back at the beginning, kind now, of. And now, now, let's not. Oh. Don't indulge in the nostalgia of which so many sagas themselves are guilty. All right. Well, then let's go back to this and say it's a good thing that Flossie's friend, Bjarni Brodhelgesen, is well informed about the available lawyers at the All Thing, and he advises Flossie on the best options. Right. Now, Flossie has in mind Bjarni's kinsman, Thorkel Gadesen. But Bjarni rejects him as too cautious to head the legal team, even though he's a very bold man otherwise. He also predicts that whoever takes the case will be killed for it, very likely, and he doesn't want his kinsmen getting signed up for that duty. Understandably. Uh, Fortunately, Bjarni knows a guy. He knows a guy? Are we doing uh, My Cousin Vinny now? Hey, we could do worse. That's actually a pretty accurate courtroom movie, you know. Uh, But no, uh, the guy Bjarni knows is a lawyer named Eolf Bolverkson. Yeah, no, Eolf's a great lawyer from a good family. He he actually he's actually the grandson of one of your Thingmen, John. Yeah, Thord Bellower. And like his ancestor, Eolf's got a talent for legal negotiations. Mm -hmm. In fact, he's one of the top three lawyers in Iceland. I knew it. Now, where did we hear (laughs) that before? Hmm. Yeah, each side has one of the top three lawyers. And uh, presumably the third of the top three is Skofty, the law speaker. (laughs) The the corrupt Skofty, the law speaker. Well. (laughs) But we know it's not Morth, at least. Right, true. Uh, But it's one thing to decide on Eolf. It's another thing to get him to say yes. Eolf doesn't like the look of the case from the burner's perspective. And he actually refuses Flosi's first offer of the job. Uh, Let me get this straight. A lawyer says, uh, did you burn them in their house? And he says, yes. And then the lawyer says, I'm not sure I can defend you. Is that right? <laughs> that roughly? sounds like you're really, like you're probably guilty. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, as Flossie's friend Halbjorn the Strong says, a tree isn't felled at the first blow. Mm. And that's true. I've never felled a tree in one blow. There you go. Yeah. So they're going to keep at him. And eventually, through a combination of flattery, bribery, and sincere desperation, they <laughs> somehow managed to convince Eolf to take the defense. I'm sorry, you did say bribery, yes? Yeah, I did. <laughs> Flossie gives Eolf a heavy gold arm bracelet. It's worth 1,200 L's of fabric. Quite a lot. Ah, well, okay. Uh, an L of cloth in 1011 AD is worth a little more than a 20th of an ounce of silver. Mm. Uh, cloth is valued at 18 L's to an ounce of silver. So this is an opportunity for Andy to do a little math. <laughs> Someone, someone's been doing their uh, homework. So this bracelet is worth how much, Andy? Uh, 67 ounces. <laughs> Why don't you tell us? <laughs> uh, it's worth 67 ounces or a little over four and a quarter pounds of silver. It's quite a gift. Yes, it is. And, and you just happen to know the conversion rates for L's of homespun cloth in 11th century Iceland, did you? Just I off the top ma- of your head here. I have many talents. Uh, <laughs> there are actually a few books for this kind of thing. Uh, Bruce Gelsinger's book on the medieval Icelandic economy is a good source. Really? And there's a site actually put up by uh, a site called the Viking Answer Lady that's mostly reliable. We can link to that. Oh, can we? Can we, John? <laughs> hmm, I think we know who's going to do that. Yeah, I think we um, do. <laughs> Assuming I remember. <laughs> but let's not get off the point. Flosi's paying off a lawyer to take over the defense. Yeah, well, he's paying him a lot to take over the defense. Yeah. But is that a problem? I mean, hiring lawyers isn't against the law. That's hard to say. I mean, there aren't any surviving laws suggesting that this is illegal in medieval Iceland. But mm-hmm. Saga's author treats this as a violation of sorts. Uh, maybe because of the size of the bribe, as you were saying, it's a hefty gift. And, and the author goes out of his way to, to price the value of it for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could also be a question of where it happens. Mm. 
Maybe what he's saying is that it's not okay to pass money around in connection with legal cases at the all thing. Which could make sense. Remember the problem of money changing hands over court cases in Bandamanasaga. 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 Well, either way, Eolf is well paid to take the case. Um, he's the Johnny Cochran. There you go. Well, anyway, either way, Eolf is paid very, very well to take this case. Uh, but shortly after that, he runs into an old friend. Dare I say his name? Mm-hmm. Snorri Gothi. Ah, an old friend to us all. Mm-hmm. And Snorri immediately spots the bracelet, and he says... Well, of course he spots it. The thing's worth a fortune. It's got to be <laughs> yeah. ostentatious as hell. It's four and a quarter pounds of silver. Yeah. Four pounds? Yeah. Wow. Or the, the equivalent in value is the point. Well, yeah. And Snorri says this. It's quite likely... Oh, come on that- now. <laughs> Ah, uh, no, that's not you how Snorri bitter bastards. <laughs> <laughs> it's no, been years, man. Get over it. Here's, it has been years. Anyway, Snorri says, It's quite likely by the time the courts are over, you'll know what a gift you've accepted. Yeah, it's a little ominous, uh, but at least Flosi's got someone to lead his legal team. One of the three best lawyers in Iceland, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Not a bad pickup for a gaudy bracelet. Okay, so both sides have their best lawyers in Iceland, mm-hmm. but they're still hoping for more muscle support to bolster those legal cases, since neither side is sure they'll be able to avoid a fight, no matter what the outcome of the case might be. Yeah. Uh, neither side really wants to avoid a fight, as far as I can tell. True, but they're also a little afraid of it. Just about everyone of any consequence in Iceland is being pulled by the gravitational force of this case, and no one's certain of the outcome of if it breaks into open violence. Which means it's time for another trip around the booths for support. Oh, we're going around these booths so much in uh, the saga. Well, we saw this before. Uh, I think this is a section where we probably should skim, if that's okay yo, with I you. Oh, I agree. I agree. Uh, so the very brief version is that Asgrim, Kari, Gizzer the White, Thorger Skorgir, and Helti Skeggison make a few strategic stops at the booths of three powerful men. Skofti the Lawspeaker, Snorri Gothi, and Guthman the Powerful. Well, those are some heavy hitters for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, two of them are, unfortunately, your uh, thingmen. Yes, they are. Are you going to go for the trifecta? And the, well, uh, I feel confident that I'll uh, I'll bring Guzman into the stable one of these one of these sagas. <laughs> he, he does up pop up. He does. But they're not necessarily men our author likes all that much. Yes, um, that's true. And with good reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember, we saw all three of these guys resist supporting Njal's sons last time, and Skopti, in particular, has been catching a lot of abuse in this saga. Yeah, no, it's true. And before you start on me again, yes, they're both my thingmen, and Skopti is still ca- acting uncharacteristically poorly. Uncharacteristically. And he once again refuses to help. This is his major I said saga. uncharacteristically. <laughs> if you pick and choose, uh, you cherry remember picker. We, we, no, we read that note that says that this saga is an aberration in the way that it treats Skofti, who is otherwise universally respected. Uh, now, Goodman is a different story. He's appalled by the burning, and he's now willing to actively support Kari. Goodman's a major player in national politics. I mean, his support means a lot of men will be flocking to Kari's side. Mm-hmm. Uh, that They don't call him Goodman the Powerful for nothing. Do they... Call you Andy, the stater of the obvious? They call me Mr. Tibbs. Ah, they call me Mr. Poitier. Sydney the Powerful, perhaps? <laughs> Have you ever seen that movie? It's amazing. Uh, yeah, but okay. let's, let's, let's should, cover a saga. Yeah, let's uh, pay attention to the ramifications of the names involved at this point. 
both Flosi and Kari have collected a remarkable set of supporters. Kari's is probably the slightly weightier group, but it's kind of like the groups arranged last year for the Nialsons and Flosi. Both sides are extremely impressive. It's just slightly weighted to one side. Mm-hmm. And that's the safeguard against violence breaking out. This mm-hmm. is so huge that no one wants to see it turn bloody because where would it stop once it breaks out? Right. Well, it worked last time, right? But a lot of blood has been spilled since then. Mm-hmm. We'll see how it plays out this year. Before we move on, though, there is the matter of the third chieftain. You mean Snorri? I do. The devious and cagey Snorri go the... Uh, no, no slandering, my thingman. Uh, now, last time, Snorri promised to stay out of the fight. This time... This time, he's at his snorriest. Yeah. Uh, essentially, Snorri tells them that he'll support Kari's group, but only secretly. He won't appear at court, but he and his men will be in reserve in case violence breaks out. It's so Snorri. <laughs> He's always lurking behind in the shadows. Yep. Yeah. And if it does end in bloodshed, Snorri's men will block the burners' retreat until Kari's supporters have had a good chance to kill a few of them. As Snorri puts it, when you've killed about as many of their men as I think you can afford to pay compensation for without losing <laughs> your gothers or your farms, I'll rush in and separate the two sides. Yeah, that's a cold-hearted plan, even for Snorri. And not well, for Snorri. What he's saying, essentially, is that he's going to create a giant dueling ground. Right? His men will wall off the escape route with their bodies and force both sides to remain in a killing field together. Ah, the killing field. <laughs> I suppose so. And Snorri's appointing himself arbiter of how much killing is just enough killing. Mm-hmm. It's a classic Snorri scheme. Everyone ends up owing Snorri, and only Snorri really benefits without actually putting himself at risk. Oh, now come on. Snorri's helping his friends. They're (laughs) asking him to do this. He's an opportunist. Uh, I want to point out, Geezer is actually the one to bring up the idea of Snorri helping out if there's violence. And once Snorri lays out the plan, Geezer says, it's just what they needed, and we're hoping to hear. Which just proves that Snorri's good at playing a situation to his advantage. Well, if... If there's violence. Sure. If. Anyway, with Snorri and Goodman backing them, Kari's group is finally settled, and just in time, because it's time for the lawsuit to begin. Ah, yes. I can tell you're trying to segue us out of this section at last. Desperately uh, so, yes. (laughs) There is one more thing we should mention. Oh? Oh, oh, do you mean Thorhall? Well, no, although I think we could talk about that if you want. I, I meant something else, but go ahead if you want to talk about Thorhall. Uh, well, it's easy enough. Uh, Thorhall's leg isn't any better, and he's now bedridden. So Morth is going to be leading the lawsuit against the Burners, and Thorhall is going to be getting updates on the case from messengers. Mm. That's a great literary device. It, it, the suspense builds as the case is relayed to a third party, and we know Thorhall's upset to be missing the case, so that adds to the tension as well. It's good, right. good writing. Yeah, well, at first, everything seems to be fine. Uh, the lawsuits are all announced, and there's a ton of them. Yeah, should we run through them? Please say no. Uh, I'll do it quickly, just to give a sense of scale, but Uh-oh. no one's trying to keep track of it all. Uh, ultimately, the specifics of who's suing whom aren't important. Uh, Morth announces two lawsuits against Flosi over Helgi's death. Thorgir Skorgir sues Glum Hildeson. Kari sues Carl Thorstenson. Gunnar Lambeson and Grani Gunnarsson. Thorleif Crow sues all the Sigfusons. Thorgrim the Tall sues Maldolf Kettleson. Lambi Sigurdsson and Hror Hamundersson. How about we skip this part? 
And Asgrim, hang on, I'm not done. And Asgrim sues Hroar's brother, Leidolf the Strong, along with Thorstein Gerlifsson, Arnie Coulson, and Grim the Red. Uh, you can send your complaints about name pronunciations <laughs> and flubs <laughs> to John Sexton at sexton.com. I did that pretty well, I thought, you bastard. You did pretty well. But you know people are just rolling their eyes. I'm just stumbling over it all because there's too many of them. <laughs> there's a lot of names they could, there. They could, they could, every one of them could have been named Joe Johnson, and I would have ended up stumbling over that. <laughs> exactly. That's yeah, a lot of suits. And th- that means they're all getting in on the act. This yeah. is a big deal. Lots of potential for money mm-hmm. to exchange hands here. Well, and all the uh, all the plaintiffs are well-trained, probably mm-hmm. by Thor Hall. Right? The assembled, cr- assembled crowd all admire how well the suits are presented. Actually, yeah, there's a lot of chatter about it. But Flosi's not sunk yet. Eolf has a plan to undermine the case against the Burners. Of course he does. He's a good lawyer. One of the top three in Iceland. You don't get a shiny wrist bangle like the one he's sporting for playing by the rules. It is shiny and heavy. And the plan is pretty (laughs) devious. Eolf advises Flosi to give up his Goldorth, his chieftaincy, to his brother Thorgir. Okay, not really devious so far. No, I wasn't finished. Uh, Flosi mm-hmm. must then quietly declare himself the thingman of his ally, Oskil Thorkettlson, from Regidal. Uh-huh. And because of this, I know all the listeners already know the significance of this, but I'm going to try yeah. to explain it. Uh, if it looks like the case is going against him, Flosi can now later declare that the suit's invalid because it was filed in the East Quarter Court when it should have been filed in the North Quarter, since that's uh-huh. where Oskil's Goldorth is. It's basically a get out of outlawry free card in case he needs right. it. Right. Yeah. No, it's, it's obviously, it's, you know, splitting legal hairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is appalling, obviously, but that's, that's actually the point. Yeah. Flosi goes along with this plan, makes himself Oscar's thingman and keeps it quiet. Yes. That's just wrong. I agree. Total perversion of the law. No, 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 no. I, I mean, I mean, yes, it is. But what I mean is that it's wrong, as in incorrect. Ailes' plan makes no sense. No, no, no. Uh, Ailes, one of the top three lawyers in Iceland. I don't think he could be wrong. <laughs> well, what no, do you mean? but okay. But no, technicalities matter when you're building your entire defense around one. The problem is that Flosi and Ailes have just come back from the court where they heard the cases presented before this conversation, right? Right. Uh-huh. Okay, I see where you're going with this. Uh-huh. So it doesn't matter uh-huh. what kind of shady deal Flosi pulls now. The case was filed correctly. Because the Flosi was a chieftain of the East Court at the time. Mm-hmm. And Flosi is still under the jurisdiction of the East Quarter Court for the purposes of this case. It doesn't matter what he does afterward. Yeah, that's a good point, but it's clearly not something the author or Flosi sees as a problem. Well, I call shenanigans on that. Well, you can write to the uh, the author's descendants and register <laughs> a complaint. Uh, but a in general meantime, letter to all Iceland. <laughs> yes, right. An open letter to the people of Iceland. Well, there, there are a number of problems with this case if you want to uh, know about them. Uh, William mm-hmm. E. Miller covers several of them. Yes. Um, but uh, again, go and read that book. Um, I think there's another thing to note about this plan. And it couldn't happen the way it does without Njol's jerry-rigged fifth court. Yeah. Uh, the one he created to deal with cases that crossed Gothors. That's true. Mm-hmm. The fifth court is supposed to be a court of last appeal, but it can also be used for various other legal purposes, like, say, countersuing someone for a botched legal proceeding. Yes, the fifth court was created so that Hoskold Fitanesgoldi could have a chieftaincy, if you remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, now it's being used to undermine the case against his burners. The irony's pretty thick here, I think. Well, that's not surprising. Uh, this author can be a little heavy-handed when he wants to be. And this part of the saga is partly an exploration of the flaws and limitations of the legal system of Iceland. Mm-hmm. 
It's pretty clear that our author is not a fan of the fifth court system. But he's also not a fan of those who cheat the spirit of the law through cheap trickery. So, sure. so that means Flosi's not looking great here either. Well, and for that matter, if we're supposed to see this as Nyal being posthumously hoisted by his own petard, he's not above criticism either. Isn't being hoisted by your own petard always posthumous? <laughs> I can't imagine living through that. I mean, how does that feel? Well, I mean, you're alive at the start. Uh, para- <laughs> paramortem, I suppose. Paramortem, I like it. Well, whatever it is. Uh, we've been arguing all along that the author is at least willing to leave the door open for criticism of Njol. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's quite possible that the irony is deliberate. That the case over Njol's death might be derailed by the effects of his own manipulation of the law. That, that's poetic. Right. So, we'll keep an eye on that. Um, for now, both sides are primed for the case of the century. But neither side is a full claim to any sort of moral high ground. Mm-hmm. Even though it's uh, probably obvious the audience's sympathies with Nyal, or at least it should be. And both sides are almost willing things to go wrong. I mean, everybody's armed to the teeth. Yeah, there's another detail about this scene that hints at the looming threat of violence. Both sides are marking their helmets to distinguish which side they're on. Oh, really? That is that is <laughs> ominous. Yeah. This is the only time this happens in all the sagas. Uh, this marking of helms before an expected brawl, right? It tells us that if battle does break out, there's real concern about it getting out of control. Yeah. Also, the sides are so large and far-ranging that people need to be able to identify their allies so it doesn't just turn into a general melee, as much as Snorri would like that. Right. <laughs> sure. It's always better to be killed by an enemy rather than a friend if you can possibly manage it. Absolutely. And with all that hanging over everyone's heads, now... Hanging over their heads because they're helmets, I get it. Yeah, I get it. Uh, now now it's time for the trial to begin. So, John, let's sue somebody. That's a nice catchphrase. Part 45. A war by other means. Okay. Let's just rip the Band-Aid off. This section is tough to read and hard to talk about. <laughs> you mean because of the legal stuff, right? Not because it's an emotionally draining read or anything like that? Yeah, well, we'll see. But yes, this is some dense writing built around legal minutia. Uh, don't get me wrong, it's edge-of-your-seat stuff plot-wise. But if you're not looking for the right things, it can be a real slog to get through. Well, you're hardly the only person to think the trial is something of a challenge. Richard Allen, for example, argues that for present readers, these dense legal passages may become tedious and they are easily skipped over. Ouch. (laughs) See, I don't know that I have that kind of scorn for the thing. I'm probably more in line with Lars Lonroth. The quantity of legal minutia comes partly at the expense of narrative structure and results from the author's compulsion to show off his esoteric learning in the subject of law. Hmm. So you're saying not so much boring as painfully obsessive? Something like that, yeah. <laughs> okay, but we should be fair. Not everyone thinks it's tough sledding. Uh, I quite like the legal stuff myself, mm-hmm. but uh, as LeVar Burton says, you don't have to take my word for it. Read the book. <laughs> Ian Maxwell, for example, says that the use of legal formula is superbly dramatic. So how about that? Superbly dramatic, John. Yeah, I don't think that's admissible. Uh, Maxwell Maxwell was a trained lawyer. Ah. He's not exactly unbiased. That's true. Anyway, I think we're putting the cart before the horse here. I want to give us a quick overview of what's happening in the legal case before we dive into the details. Oh, great. (laughs) Well, the short version is that the legal case itself never really gets off the ground. Yeah, but that's not really the whole story. 
Nothing can happen because the whole thing devolves into a contest of wits between the legal teams, and it's over increasingly minuscule points of procedure. It's very saga legal stuff right there. Yes, but so what happens next is either a virtuosic display of one-upmanship from several of the finest legal minds in the game, Mm -hmm. or it's a complete implosion of the court system and the failure of the negotiated settlement as a process. That's a pretty big or. So this is either (laughs) the best or the worst. what they said when I sailed my giant canoe down the river. (laughs) It's a a big or. (laughs) How do you handle that thing? Um, All right, let me sum this up then. So this is either the best or the worst the legal culture of Iceland can offer. Right. That's a big help. John, thanks for clearing that up for us. Who said I was here to help? Well, I think it's implied that's kind of what we do. We're not supposed to be making things worse for everyone, although <laughs> right. we kind of do. So, so you help. What do you think's going on here? I don't really know. However, I'll say this. No little amount of ink has been spilt on this episode. And it, it interests me that so many scholars always argue that the saga author takes aim at the legal system, pointing out its potential failings. We've been mm-hmm. talking about this. Yeah. Uh, to, to a degree, they're absolutely right. And in nearly every episode, we've talked about the manipulation of the law, and we've even taken aim ourselves at Njal, the saga's presumed hero for exploiting legal customs to his own benefit. Right. And he gets so, up to some pretty nefarious stuff at various points. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not surprising that people would deem the legal system suspect when it seems to consistently fail to preserve the peace. Uh, we have a body count for a reason, and the inability of the <laughs> all thing to contain the potential for violence is surely a boon to our count, but an unfortunate reality for the families affected by the killings. Mm-hmm. And and this whole saga, John, it's driven by the escalation of violence. Let me remind you, if I may... That the origins, I'm shifting, I'm shifting into my lawyer mode here. (laughs) If if the court allow. Yes. The, the origins of this whole trial, the, the hostilities that eventually led to the burning can be found in the beginning in the petty exchange of insults between Holgerth and Bergthora. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's a stretch to see the saga as an indictment of the Icelandic legal system. At the same time, though. This is a saga author who loves everything that the law and its intricate rules offers a storyteller. Mm-hmm. And if you're looking for drama in medieval Iceland, you can look to three places. You can look to the bedrooms, the battlefield, and the court. And so, I, I mean, I tend to the agree with BBC. Maxwell. <laughs> yeah, that's right, BBC. Uh, I tend to agree with Maxwell. It's a superbly dramatic moment, mm-hmm. and I love it. I, I could say more, but it occurs to me maybe everyone's sleeping since I've been talking. (laughs) So uh, I'll just conclude with this. The legal wrangling tends to be incredibly detailed because the details allow us to appreciate the complexity of the law. Mm -hmm. And it likewise affords us an opportunity to put the legal system and the culture that created it on trial as well. Again, superbly dramatic. I'm sorry, could you say that again? I wasn't listening. It's superbly (laughs) dramatic. I disagree with Maxwell. That's about it. Uh, No, so uh, I I think I agree. So the amount of detail in this saga serves a definite purpose. But ultimately, it's committed to depicting the twists and turns of courtroom gamemanship rather than the merits of the case itself. Sure, and and that's frustrating, but I think intentionally so. Okay, so let's explain what's happening here. Essentially, the Burners have their best lawyer front and center. Mm-hmm. Aeolf is doing everything he can to undermine and delegitimize the case against his clients. And Kari's team is probably the stronger in fighting power, but their best lawyers out of commission with an infected leg. Well, 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 not out of commission, yeah. but out of court. Okay, yeah. Uh, of the case is in the hands of Morth Valgerton, 
who hated the Njolsons but now finds himself fated to avenge their deaths in court. And the team's best lawyer, Thorhall Osgrimson, is offering advice from his sickbed by messengers. Right. So the tension is whether Morth, with Thorhall's advice, can maintain the legal force of the case against the Burners in the face of Eolf's disingenuous manipulations of legal procedure. Mm-hmm. Right. And when we put it that way, it actually does sound exciting, doesn't it, everyone? See? In the long run, we are here to help. <laughs> and these emotional stakes are established right away. We're not just making this stuff up. Right? As Kari's team is about to head to court, they visit Thorhall in his sickbed. And he's still offering last-second advice. Don't be too hasty. And do everything as correctly as you can. And if you get into any difficulty, let me know at once, and I'll give you advice. And as he speaks to them, his face is like blood to look at, and great gusts of hail fell from his eyes. Ow, that sounds like it hurts. I imagine it would, yes. <laughs> it's just like what we saw when we heard about Neil's death. Mm-hmm. Thorhall has real trouble controlling his emotions, but we're, we're not being asked to judge him harshly for it. Right. Instead, it's treated as a tribute to his foster father, as evidence of his desire to do everything he can to punish Njol's killers. Right, and he's frustrated as hell right now. Right. This is the most important case of his life, right? This is what he was trained for, and his body's letting him down. And he has to trust Morth, of all people, to take care of business. Yeah, not a, a reassuring situation. Uh, but actually, things do get off to a good start. Kari and Osgrim arrive at the East Quarter Court with uh, Gizor, Guthmund, Hjalti, and uh, all of their supporters. And it's an impressive group. And then Morth handles the initial round of statements pretty well. Yeah, and these are lengthy statements with witnesses being called and long passages being repeated multiple times. Mm-hmm. And when the pleading is concluded, Morth has focused primarily on Flosi's killing of Helgi Njalsson. Again, that makes the most sense as a focal point. Mm-hmm. Unlike the burning with all its messiness and about assigning blame and stuff, this is a straightforward case of assault. Flosi killed Helgi in front of many witnesses. Right, and Simple so, stuff. Right, and so Ail's defense ignores Morv's points entirely. Instead, he calls witnesses who testify that two members of the panel of witnesses Morth has named are invalid because of their connections to Morth personally. One is his second cousin, another is a family friend who held Morth at his birth, and so it's probably his godfather kind of thing. Mm, That's right, yeah. And that second one's probably meant as some sort of godparent, right? Uh, Which is a little bit of an anachronism since Morth converted to Christianity as an adult. Yeah, well spotted. Uh I've never been able to decide whether that's an attempt to rehabilitate Morth late in the story or not. You know, sort of making him a retconned Christian. Uh, if it is one, it's totally unconvincing. Yeah. Uh, no, no, he's he's still a complete jerk, though. we got to be clear. Mm-hmm. He's just a jerk working for justice. Right. Jerks for justice. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we're supposed to forget that. Mm-hmm. It's just one of those stories of this saga. The world isn't as simple as good guys and bad guys, which is one right. of the things that makes this saga so good. Um, it, it's a complicated series of alliances between people and, and those people right. along the... Right, I'm sorry. I was say some, some of those yeah. people are mostly good and some of them aren't. Yeah, right. Uh, but this is already a potential screw-up by Morth, and a number of the onlookers think the case is already lost. Yeah. But Asgrim just says, send someone to my son Thorhall and see what he says. And this is the pattern that repeats several times in a row. Each time, Eolf and Flosi try to shoot down the case on procedural grounds rather than dealing with the actual issues. Right. Um, and they come up with increasingly obscure objections uh, deep, deep into the law code. So mm-hmm. one of the keys to this, this section of the saga is we're looking for men who know the law really, really well. Kind of like Njal. Top um, three lawyers more- in Iceland, maybe. 
top three lawyers in Iceland are the guys that are going to know this stuff. And the more they know, the more they can kind of skirt around the actual issue. Mm -hmm. Each time that this happens, Thorhall can outmaneuver Eolf once he knows what's happening. Right. So this time, when the messenger returns with instructions from Thorhall, Morth dismisses Eolf's objections because the witnesses are connected to Morth, the lawyer who took over the case, and not Thorgir, Skorgir, or Kari, who are the original plaintiffs. And after some hurried whispering on either side, Eolf concedes the point, but mm-hmm. next objects to two other witnesses on the grounds that they are lodgers and not property owners, so another messenger sent to run to Thorhall for advice. Right, and one of the themes that develops from this pattern is that we start to understand Moore's limitations as a lawyer. He's mm-hmm. great at preparing a statement, and he's meticulous in his oral arguments, but he's not quick on his feet. When Eolf comes at him from unexpected directions, he doesn't know what to do, and he can't think creatively within the law. Yeah, I like that point. It's something that we saw from Morth before. If you remember his argument with uh, Njal years back, right? Oh, sure. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, Njal did the same thing, outfoxed Morth, then forced him to acknowledge each point of law. Morth said at the time, it, it's legal, but hard to accept. Mm-hmm. And and now we're seeing the same thing from him again. He lacks the ability to seize the initiative in the legal duel or, or even to anticipate his, his opponent's moves ahead of time. Right. Essentially, what we're seeing is that he's not a trial lawyer. Mm-hmm. He's he's knowledgeable in the law, but he, he can't function in the moment. But if he yeah. has time to prepare, he's fine. Uh, but these first objections already show Eolf to be a slippery customer in the law, right? a consummate trial lawyer. Right. But Thorhall's been trained by the very best. And so he sends the messenger back with the pronouncement that the men are valid because a man who farms milch animals can sit on a jury despite owning no land. And everyone's taken aback by this. Yeah, even Eolf isn't sure if that's right. And so another messenger has to be sent to Skofti the law speaker to check on it. Skofti, you might not know this, Andy, Skofti is one of the three greatest lawyers in Iceland. You don't say. Uh-huh. You, you, you can't throw a rock in this saga without hitting one of the three greatest lawyers in Iceland. I mean, they're <laughs> everywhere. No, that's it. That's it. Skofti, Thorhall, and Eolf. We've got all sure. three involved now. And word comes back from Skofti that, well, this is indeed the law, although few men know it. So, John, if I could just take a second. Don't derail us now. We're on a roll. This podcast is all about being derailed. No, this is this is actually relevant. This is a real law. This question about lodgers and milch cows. Yeah, it is. Did you go and look it up? Uh, of course not. I didn't. I didn't have to. Uh, William Ian Miller, our mm-hmm. our good friend, re- reproduces the law in blood taking and peacemaking. Um, it's from the Gragas. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the, the the law says a household exists when a man has milk animals, but if he is a landowner, he must also declare himself in thing, even if he does not have milk animals. Everyone got that? Right. So essentially, the law uses animals, not land, as the basis for a homestead. Yes. Which is fascinating. It has all kinds of knock-on implications for other aspects of Icelandic law. It does. But don't do it. I can see you getting that 10-minute digression look in your eyes, and I didn't mean to inspire that. You brought it up. (laughs) But fine. Fine. So Thorhall has defeated another Eolf stratagem, and the Mm -hmm. case can move forward. Not so fast. Eolf concocts a third objection. This time he says that four of the panel of nine are disqualified because they weren't the closest neighbors to the burning. Right. Now, this seems like it's getting into small potatoes, and it kind of is, but this really is a feature of the law. Proximity of neighbors and witnesses is important. It's so that information is reported in a timely and organized manner. Yes, but it's also the kind of technicality that Eolf excels at exploiting. Uh And once again, more this stymied. So it's time to send another messenger to Thorhall and his leg. 
<laughs> uh, the solution this time is pretty straightforward. Uh, Morth has to agree to pay a fine for each of the men who were wrongly summoned, but the case can move forward. But this is the moment when everyone who didn't already know realizes that Thorhall is actually the one calling the shots for Morth. Yes, uh, Scufty, the law speaker, says, There are more great lawyers around than I thought. Hmm? No, still just the top three, Scufty. Uh, hang on, he's not finished. Mm-hmm. He says, I thought that only I knew this detail of the law now that Njal is dead, for I was sure he was the only one to know it. Yeah, that's a bit of a giveaway. Mm-hmm. But it's also a trope. Right? What we're learning is that Njal taught Thorhall the legal equivalent of the five-finger death punch. I guess so, uh, with the Kill Bill reference clearly noted. Yeah, it's a sort of. Uh, Kill Bill is actually referring to a classic martial arts movie. Uh, but the, the point is that Thorhall is breaking out legal maneuvers that no one but Njal knew, mm-hmm. which makes it clear that only Njal's protege could be responsible for them. Yes, but it's still effective, isn't it? Eolf uh-huh. is flummoxed again, and this time the cases proceed for a while until Morth presses the suit against Flossy. Uh-huh. And at that point, Eolf breaks out the secret weapon he prepared before the case. Because Flossy's now a thingman of Askel the Gothi, the case has been presented in the wrong court! Oh! Uh, we already said that this is nonsense. Uh, but the, the saga treats it seriously, so we have to too. Uh, it is presented as a dirty trick, though, and Thorhall is shocked that Eolf would stoop so low. So that's it, then. The case is ruined all on account of that? Sort of. Uh, the other cases can still go forward, right? This only protects Flosi, not the other Burns. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one, the case against Flosi for Helgi's death is wrecked. Uh, but Thorhall's not sunk yet. He decides two can play at the dirty tricks game. And so he orders Morth to introduce a lawsuit against Flosi for paying Eolf at the all thing. <laughs> but but he hired Eolf, right? For a big fancy bracelet, I think. Yeah. Well, I said it was a dirty trick. But Thorhall's using a law that's designed to keep people from bribing lawyers. But the wording is ambiguous enough that he can argue that paying a lawyer shouldn't happen physically at the all thing. And an even sneakier move is that Morth, on Thorhall's orders, pins Eolf down in the East Court dealing with the other lawsuits while he files the bribery suit at the fifth court before Eolf can file one against more than Kari for wrongful prosecution. You lost me a little bit there, but I'm going to keep pushing forward. <laughs> Trust me on this. I know that I've read the saga, so I know what's going on there. But if you're lost too, listener, my dear listener, don't worry. <laughs> it all makes sense in the end. Trust me, it's or does it? beautifully conniving. <laughs> And so if Flosi and Eolf get outlawed for bribery, their suit against more than Kari can't move forward. Right. That's the genius of it, right? The, mm-hmm. He preempts their would-be lawsuit for wrongful prosecution. Yes. So they keep telling us Thorhall's good at this, and we're finally getting to see just how good he is. Oh, he's great. Um, but l- let's jump ahead a bit in the lawsuits to the point when Morth is presenting the case for bribery. Uh, he successfully organizes the prosecution and the case moves forward to the point when a jury must be charged with determining punishment. And now, Eolf spots a potential way out. Which is? Well, he knows more that's good at presenting information in court, but is weak on procedural detail. Mm-hmm. A fifth court jury is initially four dozen men, but there's a moment before judgment. Four dozen's a lot of men. It's a lot. Um, but it's a, you know it's meant to decide important cases, so sure. it, it, I guess it makes sense in that regard. Uh, but there's a moment right before judgment when the attorneys for each side are allowed to dismiss six men each to try to create an impartial jury. Right, which is actually pretty similar to modern American jury selection, really. 
Yes, absolutely. But there's a wrinkle in this fifth court version. If the defense doesn't, if the defense doesn't dismiss six jurors, the jury's too large, and it's the prosecution's job to dismiss six more jurors. Mm. So Aolf is betting that Morth won't know that and won't think it's important enough to send a messenger to Thorhall. Right now, that's a gamble, right? Because if Morth does know it. He can dismiss six more jurors who might be partial to Flosi's side and really mm-hmm. stack the deck against the burners. It is. And I think we're supposed to see this is a it, – it's a kind of a desperation play by Eolf. Mm-hmm. He's been beaten at every step of the way um, and he's about to face outlawry himself for this trumped-up bribery charge. So yeah. he's rolling the dice on more than missing a trick here. Can, can you miss a trick on a die roll? That seems like a mixed metaphor. You know what I mean. Let's move forward. I, I do. So Moore <laughs> does miss the trick, allowing Aelf to pass go and collect 200 checkmates. <laughs> you suck, John. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, the jury announces that they've reached a verdict. But before they can announce it, Aelf leaps to his feet and declares, Yahtzee! <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> he declares the entire suit invalid. Oh, see? Now, I wish I hadn't wasted time on dumb board game jokes. Me too. This is is crying out for a dumb legal drama joke instead. Okay, how about this? You're out of order. You're out of order. This whole trial's out of order. Exactly. See? Scent of a thingman. Coming soon to a theater near you. (laughs) That's not scent of a woman that that comes from. (laughs) Isn't it? No. Scent of a woman is where Al Pacino's blind. Yeah. Did you say you're out of order, this whole corpse out of order? No, that's from an, another movie. It's from And Justice for All. I've never heard of that movie. But it's a famous line. That's all we know. Okay, but I can't make a reference to that. There's justice for no one here. All right. So so the court, just like in And Justice for All, is uh, it in an uproar. And in the middle of it, Eolf announces the suit against more than Kari for wrongful prosecution. And he and Flosi are delighted with themselves. And Morth is dumbfounded. As he often is. Well, I should say, he might be dumbfounded. Right? This is such a basic error that some people have seen it as Morth's final step in destroying Njal's family. No. The Well, I know. Okay, but hear it out. The jury dismissal thing is a technicality that Njal actually created in the law of the fifth court. Right. He was the one who set up this court as part of the chieftaincy for Hoskold Thrainson. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So the argument is that this is a supreme screw you to Njal from Morth. Get out of Letting here. Letting Njal's killers escape through a loophole that Njal himself made. John, do you actually buy that? Come on. No, no, I don't think I do. Thank uh, you. It's, it's too far out of character for Morth, and he really has been bad at procedure this whole time. Yeah, well, and let me, um, let me just point this out real quick. It doesn't make him look good if he screws up in court, so why would he do that? Right. But, you know, as we've seen, he's he's numerous times kind of screwed himself over in this quest to destroy the Nelsons. Uh No, I think I think what's happening here, there is absolutely an irony uh, that Nyal created the fifth court rules and that they're now derailing the case. But I think it's an irony for the reader to appreciate. Right? It's not yeah. it's not happening at the narrative level. It's for us to understand. Yeah. And it's also the kind of mistake that Thorhall would never have made if he were in court. Absolutely right. Um, he is one of the three greatest lawyers in Iceland, Andy. I've heard about that, yes. But uh, I'll just remind you, Morth clearly isn't. No, he isn't. Uh, and now all Kari's group can do is send word to Thorhall once more and ask him to fix the mess Morth has made. 
And meanwhile, since everyone else is watching the case, Snorri Goldie quietly orders his men into position at the edge of the all-thing to block the burner's escape. Now, you tell me he's not a villain in that case. No, no, no. This is exactly what he and Gizor planned for him to Mm -hmm. do. He's being true and loyal to his friends. The tension in the court is ready to snap, and Snorri wants to be ready to take advantage of the situation. Uh But no one's ready for what happens next. Now that's a segue. Part 46. Chaos at the All Thing. Now, there's going to be a lot happening in this next section, which is uh, chapter 145 in the saga, if you're following along with the text at all. Are you daring to suggest that people listening to this saga might have skipped the reading, John? No, I'm suggesting they might have forgotten it by now. We started doing this eight months ago. It's okay. Well, yeah, that, you know, eager beavers pay the price. That's fair. <laughs> uh, now, for the opening of this, I don't think we can top the saga itself. A messenger came to Thorhall. Hang on now, hang on. We should probably uh, warn people that this gets a little graphic. If you're eating lunch <laughs> right now, put your burrito down. Take a second. Our, our listeners eat burritos for lunch. Is that confirmed by research? Protein bars, noodle bowls, whatever they're eating. <laughs> Apples. Okay. Um, so the messenger told Thorhall how things stood. When Thorhall heard this, he was so upset he could not speak a word. He sprang out of his bed, seized his spear, Scarpathen's gift, with both hands, and drove it through his own leg. Flesh and the core of the boil clung to the spear when he cut open his leg, and a gush of blood and a flow of pus poured like a stream across the floor. River of pus, huh? Yeah. Good times. Yeah. He then walked out of the booth without a limp, all the way to the fifth court. Sure he did. Well... There he first saw Grim the Red, Flosi's kinsman, and as soon as they met, Thorhall thrusted him with his spear and pierced his shield, and the spear passed through Grim so that the point came out between his shoulders. Thorhall threw him off the spear, dead. Wow, great description. But uh, just like that, a man has been killed at the all-thing. With a pus-covered spear. Mm. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh This is a huge event, and the fact that it's only the beginning of the chapter shouldn't distract us from it. A lawyer, a lawyer trained by the nonviolent Njal Thordrason, has just murdered a man at the All Thing. One of the top three lawyers in Iceland, no less. Yeah, so I hear. Mm-hmm. But he still committed a fatal act of violence in a place where violence is forbidden. Yeah, and even worse, he's committed a partisan act of violence in the middle of a crowd of people who are only feet away from the most hated enemies. Uh, mm-hmm. Who are only feet away from their most hated enemies. Yep. Thorhall has just thrown a lit match into a fireworks factory. Yep. And the chain reaction starts almost instantly. Kari calls to Asgrim, Here comes your son, and he's already killed a man. It would be a shame if he alone had the courage to avenge the burning. And at that, a war cry goes up from Kari's allies, and both sides just crash into each other. Now, this battle is so chaotic that we can't hope to do it justice, so you're going to need to read it yourself. And we yeah. definitely can't cover everything. But the saga author does say, Though a few of the things that happen are told here, there are many more for which no stories have come down. Right. In other words, this fight spreads out all over the all thing. And since everybody's got a momentary license to kill, there are a lot of private scores being settled alongside the main fight. Mm. Yeah, I imagine if you you know, go and visit the the uh, all thing site at mm-hmm. Thingveller in Iceland, whether this happened or not, it's just cool to stand there and just imagine this thing yep. in that space. 
It's very cool. Well, and as we're going to talk about later on, you know, we've got ample evidence that at least some of this absolutely happened yeah. historically. I mean, this seems to be part of the cultural memory of the the Icelanders, yeah. and it's not that yeah. far away. Um, and they have yeah. pretty good memories, as I'm told. Uh, right. But so for now, let's try to stay focused on our main story. Okay. At the outset, Kari rushes two of Flossie's men together, Arnie Coulson and Halbjorn the Strong. Halbjorn unleashes a huge swing with his sword, but Kari just leaps right over it. As he lands, he swings at Arnie and buries a sword in Arnie's chest. Then he pivots and cuts at Halbjorn, who's still recovering from his swing. Kari's blow skids off Halbjorn's shield, but chops off Halbjorn's toe. As Halbjorn falls back, another of Flossie's supporters, Holmston Besseson, throws a spear at Kari. He catches that out of midair and throws it back, killing another of Flossie's men. All this is happening in the first few seconds of the battle. Uh, This is the first time we're really seeing the full extent of what Kari can do in a fight. And it starts to become clear why people say he reminds them of Gunnar Hermundersen. He's just a force of nature in battle. Right. Now, now Njal's nephew, Thorgir Skorgir, rushes in too. Oh yeah, that's right. Uh, Remember, Thorgir is the cousin of the Njalsons. He's actually named for their grandfather, Thorgir. And he's also one who inherited Skarpathian's axe, Battlehag. He roars into this fight, and he also takes a shot at Halbjorn, but Halbjorn throws himself to the ground and runs away. Nice, <laughs> nice. Yeah, not a great moment for him. Instead, Thorgir comes face to face with Thorvald Thrumkittelsen, and he cuts him down with a single blow of Battlehag. Yeah, alas, poor Thorvald. Yes. We, we didn't mention it earlier, but when Thorvald and his brother Thorkel Allwise were recruited to help Flosi, their mother had a premonition that Thorvald would die on the trip. Yeah, listen to your mothers, boys. They seem to yeah. know what's going on. She was right. And meanwhile, Osgrim and his son Thorhall have formed up with Geezer the White and Hjalti Skegison's men, and they make a rush for Flossi and Eolf. They can't reach the leaders, but Flossi's men are forced to retreat from the court altogether. And on the other side of the clearing, Gudmund the Powerful and Morth Valgertsen find Thorgir Skorgir, and they attack Flossi's Rekyadal supporters. Thorgir is double-teamed by Holmstein Bestesen and Thorkel Gatesen, but he fights so well that both of them are forced to run away. And at this point, men around them on both sides start jeering at them as they flee. Yeah, and that's a theme that runs through this section. Even in the anarchy that now rules the all-thing, everyone's paying attention to the Game of Honor. And running away doesn't look good. No, it does not. And it's worse that these are some of the loudest braggarts among Flossie's supporters. And the author starts tallying up who's suffering wounds that never get compensated to, like Thorvard Chorverson, one of Flossie's less important supporters whose arm is speared through by Haldor, son of Guthman the Powerful. And in the middle of all this, Kari's still hunting the burners. He and Bjarni Brodhelgason face off and exchange blows, but Bjarni escapes when Kari is distracted by another man whose leg he gashes open. And then the crush of men pushes all the groups apart, and it's just chaos. One large group of Flossie supporters, led by Hall of Sida and his son Ljot, uh, try to retreat and regroup. But then they run into a wall of men Snorri's placed in their way, and Snorri begins taunting Flossie for retreating. This is a desperate <laughs> moment for Flossie's men. They are now caught between Snorri's troop on one side, Geezer and Gudmund's men on the other, and they're bottlenecked between two groups of booths. Right. Now, this is starting to look like a potential bloodbath. It's Isn't it already a bloodbath? All right. A slaughter. Is that better? Not really. More but... men are injured. Uh, and as we were saying, the whole Donnybrook is threatening to turn into a hundred different <laughs> mini-feuds. A Donnybrook, you say? Yeah. I, I rarely get to use it in a sentence. 
I have to take the opportunity. All right. That's fine. My point is that there's, there's almost a clock ticking in everyone's heads. They all know this can't continue for long. Right. And with Snorri having gathered his supposedly neutral force, it'll only be a matter of minutes before people start trying to end the fracas. And now fracas. Uh, can I, may I just introduce the word brouhaha? Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Let's do that. Uh, but don't get us off topic. Everyone has a few more moments to take a shot at whoever they've been spoiling to fight. Osgrim, for example, decides to punish Scoffy Lawspeaker for failing to support Kari's case, and he throws a spear that spikes right through both of Scoffy's legs. Mm. And Halbjorn the Strong hears a man laughing at the retreat of Flossie's men and fatally throws the man into a cooking cauldron. And men That's are a st- hell of a way to go. <laughs> it's horrible. And men are still dying and being wounded on both sides. Now, at this point, Flossie's leg is pierced by a spear, and he has to limp away from the worst fighting. Another spear is thrown into Hall of Silas Force, and Hall's son, Yot, is killed. Now, we have to pause for a moment over this. Uh, we mentioned mm. Yot a couple of episodes ago. He, he's a promising right. young man with a prophecy on his head, that if he attended three all things and came home safe, he would grow to great prominence and live to old age. Yeah, that doesn't seem to have worked out. No. Uh, this this was the poor kid's third time at the all thing. Ah, poor guy. He was so close. Yeah. Now all Yalt's story needs is a wisecracking partner out to avenge Yalt's death. Right. He was only two weeks from retirement. <laughs> uh, now, while we wait for that, uh, Thorgir and Kari are side by side again in the crowd. And Thorgir spots Eilf Bolverkson, the lawyer for the defense in the crowd. Possibly he sees the sun glinting off the uh, valuable bracelet. Oh, very Iliadic. He tells Kari it's time to repay Eilf for that bracelet bribe. Hmm. Obviously, Kari's all for that. And uh, he flings a well-aimed spear at Eilf. The spear goes through Eilf's waist, and uh, just like that, Eilf's dead. There's a lawyer joke here somewhere, but I'm not going to bother. Nah. Now, uh, well, I think we do need to consider who moves up the ranks of the three best lawyers in Iceland. <laughs> Morth's at least one step closer to the big leagues. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that after this debacle, Morth's entire career in law may be in jeopardy. Top three status is probably a stretch. Yeah. The supporters of Snorri Gothi, Hall of Sitha, and Skafti Lawspeaker eventually band together to force an end to the fighting, and a truce is agreed to for the duration of the all thing. And then everyone gets to work lining up the corpses and binding up the wounds of the living. Right. There's there's really no sense of closure here either, and I think deliberately. The fighting ends abruptly, and it's clear that without a remarkable occurrence, the end of violence is only temporary. Yeah, and the leaders realize that as well. So the next day, everyone sort of naturally drifts back to the Law Rock, where they find the chieftains gathered. And then Hall of Sitha stands up to speak. Right now, Hall, remember, is a supporter of Flosi's, but only because Flosi is married to his daughter. And so now he's lost his son, Yot, in a fight that he didn't want in the first place. Yeah, he seems to me to be kind of a moderate voice in all of this. And and now he calls for peace. Hard things have happened here. I'll show that I'm a man of no importance. I want to ask Osgrim and the other men who are behind these suits to grant us an even-handed settlement. Right, now rhetorically, that's an interesting move, isn't it? It tries to reset the stage a little. Sure, there have been all these deaths, but... If the whole thing can be reframed as a legal disagreement, there's a possible path forward toward peace. Yes, it also tries to establish equivalence. Uh, Asgrim mm-hmm. and Kari starting a killing spree at the All Thing is an even-handed balance against the Burners' crimes in killing Yol's family. Right, and for exactly that reason, Kari and Thorger Skorger both speak up at once. Kari says, 
Even if all the others settle, I won't, because you will want to set these killings against the burning, and we won't stand for that. It's probably not a bad settlement, legally speaking, but, uh, but morally, it's hard to accept the two as equivalent acts. Yeah, uh, Scofty Lawspeaker and Kari now exchange insults, and then Snorri Gothi mutters a short verse mocking the burners for having run away during the fight. Kari goes even further. Men have made jokes, mocked the burning of Njal, the deaths of Grimm and of Helgi. They do a great wrong, and after this all thing draws to an end, there will be a grunting of a different sort in Svinafell. Hmm. Out of curiosity, is mm-hmm. Svinafell, does that, uh, that word mean swine? It does. Oh. Thus the grunting. Thus the grunting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an unmistakable threat. That's Flossie's yeah. farm, and Kari intends to continue seeking blood vengeance no matter what happens next. Right. And there's an ugly mood starting again. And we have to remember, these are people who were trying to kill each other yesterday. Yeah. It won't take much to set them off again. Yeah, I, I think it's being set up as a dangerous situation. But before things can grow violent again, Hall of Seetha speaks up a second time. All men know what sorrow the death of my son Lyot has brought me. But for the sake of the settlement, I'm willing to let my son lie without compensation. And what's more, offer both pledges and peace to my adversaries. I think this is Hall's Don Corleone moment. Uh, okay. <laughs> it's, I'm talking about the speech that Don Corleone, this is, I assume everybody knows this is the Godfather. This is the speech that Don Corleone gives to the assembled heads of the families after the death of his son, Sonny. Is vengeance going to bring back your son to you? Or my boy to me? I forgo the vengeance of my son. Uh-huh. In that, in that regard, yeah. Now I can see that. It's either way. It's an incredible concession, and it's something we've we've talked about before. There are ways to win honor while conceding or losing a lawsuit, and we should be yeah. clear that this is one of the most historically verifiable events of the entire brawl at the Althing. Liot Halson's mm-hmm. death is recorded in multiple annals and becomes the signature event of the settlement afterward. Yep. Now, people have since debated how important Hall's speech is and what it signifies. Some see it as a heroic commitment to peaceful resolution and a bid to save the legal authority of the all thing as a place of reconciliation. Others read it as the quintessential example of the new way forward for Christian Iceland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, and that's what I was thinking. I think it makes sense to consider the Christian mm-hmm. reading of this. The saga has been setting Hall up as a good Christian, the example of good Christian practice and behavior uh-huh. for a long time now. And remember, we saw him way back during the conversion. He was the one who heard Thongbrons praying to St. Michael and decided he wanted a friend like the saint. Everybody should have a friend like St. Michael. And Hall is one of those minor figures in Njal's saga who have their own entire story arc going on in the periphery of the narrative. It, mm-hmm. it can be really rewarding to follow some of those other stories and see what the author's doing in each arc to comment on the main narrative. In this case, Hall's full and sincere adoption of Christianity provides one of the few optimistic notes in the later stages of the saga. Yeah, the old traditions of the settlement age are fading away or collapsing under their own weight. But Christianity offers a new identity for Icelandic culture. Yeah, well, the old ways seem to not be working anymore. So something Mm -hmm. like that, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it makes good sense. Uh, Speaking of St. Michael, by the way, uh, Andrew Hammer makes a really interesting point here. So back when he converted, Hall would have heard Thangbrand offering a mass for St. Michael. 
And that mass would have featured the gospel for the Feast of St. Michael, which at the time would have been Matthew 17, verses 1 to 10. The moment when Christ tells his disciples that whoever is as humble as a child is greatest in heaven. It lines up nicely with Hall calling himself a man of no importance when he's waving off the price for his son. Mm. You see, people, that's what good research gets you. Little insights Mm -hmm. like that. Good job. Uh, So back to the saga, there's no question but that everyone's impressed. I mean, Snorri Gothi starts trying to negotiate a peace and men on both sides are essentially shamed into agreeing to a settlement. Right. Not quite everyone, though. Kari and Thorger Skorger both refuse flat out to be party to any settlement. Understandable. But the others, Gizr the White, Gudman the Powerful, Hjalti Skegjason, even Osgrim Alita Grimson, all agree to make peace so long as the terms are favorable. And and it is favorable. The the settlement mm-hmm. that eventually Very. gets worked out is that Njal is valued at triple compensation, a huge honor. Berg, Thora, yeah. Grimm, and Helgi all get double compensation. Everyone else who died in the fire is valued at single compensation except for Skarpathen. Now, why not Skarpathen? Well, his death is balanced against the killing of Hoskold Thrainson, so that case is finally resolved too. Excellent. Now, there's one other exception to the compensation package, but we'll get to that in a minute. On the other side, the burners are punished seriously. Most of those killed on their side are uncompensated, including the lawyer Eilf Balverkson. No compensation for him. Flosi receives minor outlawry, so three years exile, but several of the burners, including Gunnar Lambeson, Grani Gunnarsson, Glum Hildeson, and Kol Thorstenson, are all outlawed for life. Wow. It's a sweeping victory for Kari's side. And there's yep. only one exception to Flosi's supporters going uncompensated. Everyone is so moved by Hall of Seath's willingness to forego vengeance for his son that both sides chip in and Ljot Halsen is compensated at quadruple value. That is the single highest valued compensation for any one death in the entire lawsuit. That's that's kind of heartwarming, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of nice to end on a happy note. Oh, I wish you hadn't said that. (laughs) Why not? Well, because there's another note. Oh, no. (laughs) And it's it's definitely less. It's a minor note. Yeah. Uh, Yacht Halson's high price underlines a missing element of the settlement. What's that? Kari also has a son. His three-year-old son, Thord, is the only victim of the burning who received no compensation. Ooh. Well, I mean, Kari's rejected the entire idea of the settlement agreement, so that's not entirely surprising. No, but his the absence of his son from the compensation roles means that Kari's got a clear motivation for his revenge. Mm-hmm. As he says later in the saga, even if I can say that we've avenged the burning, I know that my son is unavenged, and I'll take that on myself and find what revenge I can. We've got one more episode of Njal Saga to go, and the story from this point forward is centered on Kari's superhuman effort to avenge his son's death on every last burner. People, it's going to be a hell of a conclusion. (laughs) But that's for next time. For now, we are left with the image of Kari and Thorgir riding off from the All Thing together as everyone else makes peace. Yeah, sorry to ruin the happy ending. Ah, well, there's more to life than happy endings. But please, uh, everyone, (laughs) let us know what you thought of the legal drama at the All Thing. Ask questions, offering alternate theories, or tell us what you wish we were doing instead of still covering y'all. 
Oh, there's such a long yeah. list. Um, uh, just a quick note. Uh, we'll be doing the judgment section in just a few weeks from now. Hopefully, mm-hmm. we pray. Um, if you have any questions that you'd like us to address in the judgment section, uh, please send those now. You can reach us through yeah. Twitter, where we are at SagaThingPod, or on Facebook, where we are SagaThingPodcast, and our blog is SagaThingPodcast.wordpress.com. Or you can announce a response against us by repeating the exact same convoluted pronouncement three or four times in the presence of several dozen witnesses. Don't forget to ask one of the top three lawyers in Iceland for help. Mm, That's it for now. Thanks for listening, everyone. We will be back sooner rather than later with the final episode of Njal Saga. (laughs) The light at the end of the tunnel may or may not be a burning farmhouse. (laughs) Bye for now. Did it. Talk slower. <laughs> <laughs>